So glad to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? All right, if you do, you need to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. As you can see, we're going to mix things up a little bit in the order of service today from our usual arrangement. This is because the text this week is unlike what we've been seeing over the last few weeks. For about the last month in our study of 1 Peter, we've been looking at these very clear imperatives in the text, these commands, these direct calls to action, namely, fix your hope, be holy in all of your conduct, conduct yourselves with fear in the time of your exile. And while we spent some time examining the supporting material around those commands, when it came time for application in the sermon, it was pretty straightforward. Fix your hope, be holy, conduct yourselves with fear. Well, this week it's different. There's no imperative in the text that we will look at today. There's no direct call to action. So rather than calling us to specific action, this week's text turns our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ and to our Father in heaven. We'll focus our attention on them. And then in response, we will want to worship. Specifically, we will want to sing. And so that's what we're going to do today. We are flipping the service over. I'm going to preach first. We're going to see the Father and the Son from the Word of God. And then we will sing in response. We will not be silent. We will shout out his praise, right? That's what we want to do today. And this is going to be a good day for us, right? It'll allow us to breathe a little bit. The last few weeks have been difficult. Not been easy studies in First Peter for the last few weeks, especially last week. We really had last week to gird up the loins of our minds and think hard, and think clearly about what it means to conduct ourselves with fear in the time of our exile. That's not a popular message. It's not in the direction that most of us are already leaning. So we did the hard work. Last week we did the hard work of understanding the text properly so that we could do the hard work of obeying the command faithfully. And in it all, we're super glad that we're not alone, right? Super glad to be indwelt by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit as we pursue the obedience of faith. Uh, We don't just gird up our loins and work in our own power. We gird up our loins and we rely on the Spirit's power working through us. So for application last week, I said, next time you're tempted to live like the old man, in the old ways from which you have been redeemed, next time you're tempted to live just like the world, just like your lost neighbors, remember. Remember that God is your Father. Remember that your Father is a righteous judge. Remember that you have been redeemed. Remember that the price that was paid for your redemption, for you, the price that was paid was not a few dollars. It was not even a truckload of gold. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember all of this and conduct yourselves with fear and with holiness and with hope. So one of the questions we dealt with last week at the end was how how do we keep our minds on these things? How do we keep constantly remembering these things? Well, one of the best ways we remember this is by reading the Bible, by reading the Bible faithfully and letting it say what it says, not trying to smooth off rough places that we don't uh, like, that we don't prefer, that we don't accept easily, not trying to smooth those off, not by bypassing difficult subjects, but by reading the Bible and letting it say what it says and letting it say what it says to us with authority in, in such a way that we submit to it and we obey it. We also keep our minds on this by living in community by letting others remind us of the truth, letting others teach us, letting others show us the way. If you were in small group Bible study this morning, you talked a lot about partnership. 
the importance of fellowship in the faith so that we can hold each other accountable, so that we can remind each other and show each other what the way is. I said last week, maybe it's helpful to frame all of this in the positive rather than the negative as the text does. So in the positive, we would say in every moment, we want to live in such a way that our father, our father who is the righteous judge, will smile upon us. That he would look at the way we live and say, that's my boy. That he would look at the way we live and say, that's my girl. And that he would be pleased with the way we conduct ourselves. Positively, we would say in every moment, we want to live in such a way that it's obvious that we understand that the price that was paid to bring us out of the old ways is indeed precious. We want to live in such a way that it's obvious that we appreciate the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. We want to treat, we want to fear treating our Father. We want to fear treating the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood like they are trash rather than like the treasure that they truly are. It's the way one of my favorite preachers says it. In fact, I believe that this week's text continues to reinforce the preciousness of our God and in so doing inspires our faithful, obedient, holy, fearful conduct during this time of exile. So today will be a break from the imperatives to meditate on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ together. Today will be an elaboration on the redemption that we have experienced through the blood of Jesus and only through the blood of Jesus. And today we will fix our eyes on Christ. We will ponder him. We will adore him. We will worship him together today. So let's read the text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 is what we're going to zoom in on today, what we're going to study closely. Let's read this together from God's word, recognizing that this is the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask in these moments that you would open our eyes that we may see the all-surpassing value of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see the preciousness of his blood that was poured out for our redemption. Teach us that this was not an afterthought, it was not a last-second response to our sin, but that it was the plan of our Heavenly Father from before the world began. Open our eyes that we may see and open our ears that we may hear these glorious truths. We pray that you would remind us of the things we've already been taught, even over just the last few weeks, that you would remind us of all those things. We ask that you would open our hearts, that we may receive all of this in such a way that it changes us, that it really changes us, and it changes us forever. We pray that you would convict us of sin, we pray that you would convince us of Christ's supreme worth. We pray that you would empower our response, especially as we sing together in a few minutes. Holy Spirit, we need you. We love you. We look forward to what you will do in this time that we have together today. So do your work, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. All right, look at it in verse 20. There's a whole lot going on here, and a whole lot good. And again, we're, gonna, we're just going to try to focus our attention on Jesus we're going to see him, and then we're going to respond in worship to him. It says in verse 20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That little word at the beginning of verse 24 connects what we are going to see today with what we considered last week. 
It's a connecting word. In many ways, what we're going to see this week strengthens the foundation for this call to live with holiness, to live with hope, to live with fear during our time of exile. That foundation only gets stronger because of our study today. In the text, the he at the beginning of verse 20 is Jesus. Jesus, the one whose blood was given for our redemption. Jesus, the one whose blood is precious. Jesus, the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the one whose blood is the only acceptable sacrifice to atone for your sins and to accomplish your redemption. Jesus, the only one who can save you. The only one who could save you today. And I'm, I'm begging, if you have not experienced that salvation, I'm begging if you don't know Christ as your Savior today, that even now you would repent of your sins and trust in him. That even now you would give your life completely to him and accept the gift of salvation that he offers freely by grace through faith in him alone. And if you are, if you are already believing, go on believing. If you're already repenting, go on repenting. This text should help us who are already believers to go on living the life of faith, to go on living the life of repentance and faith. This should only help all of us in this room today. Notice in the text that it says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now this is an important truth that we should celebrate when we sing in a little bit. The redemptive plan of God was not an afterthought. The gospel is not God's response to the fall of man in the garden. It's not as if Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, ate the fruit that God told them not to eat, and the father said, I didn't see that coming. What are we going to do now? How are we going to take care of this situation? That's not the way the gospel works. It's not the way the plan of redemption works. Rather, he has planned this from the beginning before the world was even created. In other words, this plan of redemption through the Son, through the sacrifice of Christ, is what brings God most glory. It's been plan A from the beginning, that Christ would die for sinners and redeem a people for himself. That's been plan A from the beginning, and there has never been plan B. And it is this truth that the gospel was plan A that Paul rejoices over in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at this with me. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is rejoicing on the good plan of the gospel from the very beginning. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with his holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ from all eternity." Grace, which was granted us in Christ from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. I want you to notice there, he talks about grace granted to us in Christ from all eternity. Same idea that Peter is expressing here in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he talks about from the foundation, from before the foundation of the world. Paul celebrates that. Peter himself has been preaching this since the day that he was filled with the Spirit and the church was born back at Pentecost. You remember that day, right? You remember, you remember reading about that at least in Acts chapter 2? Spirit is poured out and Peter, of all the apostles, Peter is the one that stands up and begins to preach, to preach good news to men from all over the place who had gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost. 
and he says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter, same author of our letter, preaching at Pentecost, says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So from the earliest preaching of the gospel, from the very birthplace of the church, Peter has been proclaiming that this plan, this plan that Jesus would die and rise again, is the predetermined plan. It happened by the predetermined plan and by the foreknowledge of God. So this is not a conclusion he has come to later in his ministry as he writes in 1 Peter, but from the very beginning he has known that this was the plan all along. And this is why we sing sometimes here, salvation's plan from the beginning. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. This was not an afterthought. It was not plan B. It was not a response to our sin, but it was a sovereign plan of God from before the foundation of the world. Karen Jobes highlights the connection between Christ being foreknown in the text we're looking at today and us being foreknown back in verse 2 of chapter 1 in 1 Peter. She says, The foreknowledge of Christ's redeeming death that we're looking at here in 19 and 20 corresponds to God's electing foreknowledge of those who would be redeemed by it. Thus, God knew the complete program, the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world. Not only the how, but the who. From the, before the foundation of the world, this was the plan. The expository commentary highlights the preciousness of this truth as it relates to what we talked about last week. It says, the point is that God's purpose in ransoming sinners was not an afterthought, but was conceived in his heart before time began. This was the plan all along. And friends, when we understand this, it increases the preciousness, the value, the treasure of the blood of Jesus like we talked about last week. And as we appreciate the blood of Jesus, that will increase our fear of treating his blood as common, as trash, which in turn will inspire us to live with holiness and with great hope in the grace that will be revealed at his coming. I want you to see that all of this works together. All of this works together. What we have been seeing over the last month or so is right here. If we see Jesus high and lifted up, all other things will fall into place. I know that in our study of 1 Peter, we've had our noses like really close to the text, looking at a verse or two at a time. But if we zoom out just a little bit, we will see that all of this, all of this is working to make much of Jesus and to help us live our lives, every moment of our lives, in response to who he is. Read on. Not only does it talk about the foreknowledge of Christ, it says, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. When we consider this truth alongside what we just saw about foreknowledge, we see the great privilege, the great privilege that is ours living in the New Testament era. In the last section, we saw that the gospel was the plan of God all along, the plan of God all along to send the Son to redeem a people for himself. And all of this was foretold over and over and over in the Old Testament, was it not? It was predicted from as early as Genesis chapter 3, 
when we see this promise, the, the very first gospel, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Do you remember that? From there, we have been anticipating the coming of this Messiah. We see it in the law when Moses declares that another one like me will rise up among you. Follow him. Listen to him. We see that promise of a coming Messiah. We see it in the prophets where we have the anticipation of the promised king, the promised greater prophet, the promised servant, the promised savior. We see all of this in the Old Testament longing for and looking for the fulfillment of these promises that God has made. Jeremiah speaks of it in chapter 31 as a new covenant that is coming. When he says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What I want you to see is that the people of God lived in constant expectation and longing anticipation for the day when the Savior, the Messiah, would come. And that's what we try to capture here at First Baptist Church each year at Christmas time as we celebrate Advent. We celebrate Advent, I often use the phrase, this is our anticipation of the celebration of the incarnation. What was foreknown before the foundation of the world, what was anticipated for thousands of years, Peter says to his audience, has now come to pass. The coming days that Jeremiah spoke of, Peter says, they've come. The coming days are here. Imagine the thrill that that would be for those first century believers. Imagine the thrill that all of this would have been for the first century believers who for generations had longed for the coming of the Messiah. And then Christ comes and walks among them and word spreads, the Messiah has come. The Messiah is here. The day is fulfilled. Imagine the excitement that they would have had as they beheld the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine the excitement for those first century believers. And friends, let us join in that excitement today. For the coming day, the promised day, the long-awaited one is here. He has come. He has died for our sins. He has risen again. He has ascended to the Father where he sits at his right hand, and he will return for us one day. We need to join in that excitement with our first century brothers and sisters because he has appeared. The text says it. In this verse, it says he has appeared in New American Standard. Other translations say he was made manifest or he was revealed. And that's a reference to the incarnation. It's a reference to what we celebrate at Christmas time. And what we celebrate is Christmas time. At Christmas time is not the creation of Jesus. Like, make no mistake about it, Jesus was not created, he's the creator. Everything that was created was created by him. That means he is not a created being, that means he is God from eternity past. It's not the creation of Jesus, but rather the presentation of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus on the earth. Jesus has always existed as the second person of the Trinity, and he has appeared. He has been revealed. He has been manifested. And what does it say in the text? 
his appearing marks the beginning of the last times. He has been revealed in these last times. We need to acknowledge that although the end, the end of all things is yet to come, we, brothers and sisters, are living in the last days. These are the last days. The last days began with the coming of Jesus. Certainly, they began with his death, burial, and resurrection. Undoubtedly, they began with his ascension back to the Father, because what's left? What's left to happen at this point? Of all the things that are promised, of all the things that are anticipated in the scriptures, what's left to be fulfilled? Only his return. Only his return is left. Brothers and sisters, we are in the last times. That's why the author of Hebrews speaks of it this way. At the beginning of his letter, he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through also whom he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. I want us to recognize that all of this also highlights the dignity, the worth, the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. These last times are marked off by him. The last times are marked off by him and not anything else. All of history hinges on the Lord Jesus Christ. The last days are not marked by the arrival of the Antichrist. The last days are not marked by the arrival of a beast, but rather by the appearing and the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus as he died and was buried and was raised and ascended back to the Father. He is the center point. He is the hinge upon which all of history swings. And notice that he has appeared in these last times for your sake. Look at it in the text. All of this is for your sake. It's super interesting to me that Peter says your instead of our. Right? Why, why would he do that? He's included in this, right? Christ has appeared for Peter's sake as well, has he not? But he looks at them and he says, this has happened for your sake. He's trying to encourage these folks directly and personally and say all of this, this redemptive work, this appearing of Christ is for your sake. And I want to say that to you. Brothers and sisters, for your sake, it's for your sake that Christ came, for your sake that Christ died, for your sake that Christ rose, for your sake he has ascended, for your sake he is coming back. Tom Schreiner says, the manifestation of Christ refers to his incarnation, we've already talked about that, and Peter emphasized that believers enjoy the blessing of living at a time when God was fulfilling his saving promises. The stunning privilege, he goes on to say, of believers is communicated once again because all these things occurred for their sake. What a tragedy it would be to throw all these privileges away by ceasing to live in the fear of God. This was for you. This blood was for your redemption. Christ appeared for you to redeem you. Why in the world would we live like that's insignificant? Why, would, why in the world would we live like the rest of the world who knows nothing of these things? The preciousness of Christ and his blood must impact the way that we live. Now this, for your sake, should not puff us up with pride. We've got to be careful here. To not take that and make it, make it seem as if we are the center of the universe. Rather, this truth, that Christ came for our sake, should humble us. And it will humble us when we know 
the truth about who God is. When we understand the truth about who God is in all of his holiness, in all of his righteousness, in all of his justice, and then when we know the truth about who we are in all of our sin, in all of our rebellion, in all of our idolatry, and then when we think that the holy God sent his perfect son to die as the ransom for us, that doesn't puff us up with pride. That breaks us down in humility, puts us in a place of humble reverence, humble awe, wonder, fear even, obedience and worship because we know that we did not deserve this. This is for our sake, but we did not deserve it. What do we deserve from God? What do we as sinful man deserve from the holy God? Nothing but wrath, nothing but judgment, nothing but punishment, right? And yet he has sent his own son who poured out his precious blood so that we might be saved. What a price, what a price was paid for us. So what do we do? We fear. We fear treating our father as if this is normal, as, is, as if this is natural, as if this is expected. We, we, we fear treating even our relationship with him as our father as if that's an expected thing. No, no, no. It's not natural that he's your father. He chose to be your father. You are not naturally child of God. You're supernaturally by adoption a child of God. He chose to be your father and he paid a massive price in order to be your father, in order to make you his child. You are his child by his choice and by his payment of his own son's blood. What a price was paid for you and for me. So what do we do? Oh, we praise his name for that. We praise his name that he would redeem us at such a cost and we live every moment of our lives in light of this great sacrifice. Notice also that this text teaches that we believe in God through Jesus Christ. We believe in him through Christ. This is packed with truth, and I don't know that I can unpack all of it in these few moments, but there are two things I want you to notice here. One, Jesus is the path by which we believe in God. Jesus is the path by which we believe in God. He is our mediator. He is our great high priest. He is the one who puts one hand on God and one hand on us and brings us together in counsel. Jesus says this himself in John 14 as he speaks to his disciples just before he's going to be crucified. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the path by which we believe in God. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our high priest. That's part of what it means that we believe in God through him. He's the way. He's the path. But secondly, he is also the power by which we believe in God. He is the path and he is the power by which we believe in God. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. I really only wanted to read verse 8 to you here but I cannot possibly just read verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 2. 
Like you got to read all 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to do that because I believe that God's word is powerful. And, and I'm like pretty confident that God will use this word today to save somebody. Like just, just the power of this one text to bring someone from darkness to light, to bring them from death to life. Look at this good news. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Some of you still are. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Look at verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Friends, by grace, you can be saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, this is where we're going. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That not of yourselves, none of this, this whole good news of the gospel, none of this, this repentance and faith originated with you. It is not of yourselves, it is all the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Jesus is not just the path by which we believe in God. He is also the power by which we believe in God. He grants us faith and repentance. If you, have, if you are living in faith and repentance, it's because he gave you faith and repentance. You could not muster that yourselves, and you would not have anyway when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He gives faith. He gives repentance. And my prayer is that he'll give it to somebody today and save their lives forever and ever by it. Because Jesus is not just the path by which we believe in God. He is the power by which we believe in God. Edmund Clowney says it like this. It is the Lord Jesus himself who, by his spirit, is the agent of our salvation. Our salvation is all of God. He planned it. He accomplished it through the sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ. He brought it to us through Christ. Our faith and hope are therefore in God. Salvation is all of God. Amen. And so if we've received it, we praise his name. And if we love others and want to see them receive it, we pray that God will give it to them. We pray that God will give them faith and repentance to trust in Christ and turn from their sins. Read on, though. It says, God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. What we want to see here is that the resurrection of Jesus was proof. The resurrection of Jesus was evidence and verification that he is the son of God, the perfect, sufficient, effective sacrifice for sins once and for all. One sacrifice for sins, not thousands of bulls and goats. One sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God who shed his blood so that we could be forgiven forever and ever. And the resurrection of that sacrifice is the evidence that it was different from all the others. The evidence that it was sufficient. Paul rejoices in this in Romans chapter 1. Look at it with me. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised 
We talked about this. He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, just like the prophet said, who was, in verse 4, declared the Son of God, proven, shown to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus. There's a lot there. What I want you to see is the resurrection of Jesus is proof, evidence, verification that he is the Son of God, raised from the dead and given glory. Listen, let these last two texts prepare your heart to sing his praises in just a minute. Philippians chapter 2 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Think also of Ephesians chapter 1. This is my prayer for you. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory and we will sing his praises in just a few minutes. But notice this last phrase in the text. He did all of this so that your faith and your hope are in God. So that your faith, which we described the other day as present tense trust for today, faith is present tense trusting God for this moment and hope being future tense trust for tomorrow. He did all of this so that our present tense trusting for today and our future tense trusting for tomorrow would be in God. That our hope would be in God alone. And my question is, is your hope in God? Is your faith in God? Is your trust for today and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow in him? And do your actions indicate that? Or is your faith and hope in something of this world? Are you putting your future tense trust for today, your present tense trust for today in yourself, in your government, in your money, in your health? Are you putting your future tense, future tense trust for tomorrow in yourself, your government, your health, your money? Remember the audience to whom Paul, Peter is writing in this, in this letter. 
They were exiles, scattered around. They weren't in their homeland. They were outsiders, complete outsiders. Where could they have any faith? Where could they have any hope if it wasn't in God alone? That's the way we must live as well. Even when we're insiders, even when it seems like we're cultural insiders, our faith and our hope must be in God alone. That's his design so that we would depend on him entirely. So here's the application. Here's the application for today. All of this, all of this that we've talked about should raise our affections. If we get even just a tiny glimpse of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, if we get just a tiny glimpse of God's grand design to redeem a people from from the broken world for himself, if we get even just a little glimpse of these great truths, we will worship him for it, right? We we will sing, our hearts will be stirred, and we will desire to sing. So we're going to do that. It will raise our affections. Number two, it should increase our fear. Increase our fear that we would not treat him as trash by the way that we live, but that we would treat him as the treasure that he is by the way that we live. And number three, this should motivate holiness and it should motivate hope so that we show that he is our treasure. He is our treasure by the way that we worship in these next few minutes and by the way that we conduct ourselves when we leave this place. We conduct ourselves with hope, with holiness, in fear, because he is worthy. Let's stand together and pray. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive all of this. And now we pray that you will open our mouths to respond in worship, to sing praise to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life to ransom us for his precious blood that was poured out to redeem us. Holy Spirit, open our mouths to sing praise to the Father who planned this from the foundation, from before the foundation of the world so that our hope and our faith would be in him. Open our mouths to sing praises in these moments and help us to live every moment as we leave here in response that we would conduct ourselves with fear in the time of our exile, that we would conduct ourselves with holiness in the time of our exiles, that, that we would conduct ourselves with hope, great hope, during our exile, all for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.